This episode is sponsored by Agendi. Reach your climate goals with Agendi. From sustainability assessments, implementing sustainability strategies, to bespoke reporting, we provide you a personalized experience tailored to your needs and expectations. Visit us to learn more at agendi.co. That's A-G-E-N-D-I dot C-O. We'll lead the way. From GreenViz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in Denver, Colorado, on this week's edition, an insider's view of Climate Week. Can robots and drones help clear the Great Lakes of plastic? Salesforce's new carbon credit marketplace? And can the global chemicals industry reinvent itself as a climate solution? It's the right formula this week on 350. It's September 23rd, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Always glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midtown Manhattan, always the center of action, it's Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. It has been a while. I hope you're well. <laughs> I'm doing okay. Uh, you are in, in, in Climate Week. In, uh, where are you actually right now? I am in the hubbub of the hub, the hub live. I know we're we're re-recording uh, this a little earlier than it's yeah. airing, but yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll just yeah. talk about that. But yeah, I'm over at the hub where I'm doing some um, some sessions on supply chain leadership, which I'm excited about. Yeah, well, hubba hubba, that sounds good. Uh, yeah, we we were recording this on Wednesday as we do every week, so you don't have the full climate week, but you got a bunch of it. Uh, any impressions? Is it? Is it, it seemed to me I was I was really have a mild to medium case of FOMO, uh, having just come back from Europe and now being in Colorado and not being able to get to New York uh, for this. Uh, it seems like there's a ton going on, certainly more than the last two or three years for obvious reasons, but even perhaps even more so than in 2019. Yeah, it's actually so. There's quite a few people here. Uh, I I uh, was over at the opening ceremony. Ton, tons of uh, corporate sustainability folks over there I got a chance to reconnect with them some familiar people and um, everyone's just kind of looking around thinking okay what do we need to do how do we do it um, how let's you know very nuts and bolts you know to the theme um, of, of this getting it done theme which which was actually the theme last year too but now that everyone's in person they're they're really trying to get it done <laughs> <laughs> like, right. um, let's really get it done this let's year Let's really get it done this year um, yeah, yeah. but yeah I mean I think there's quite a lot of different conversations you know I, I think one of the things that I've noticed is that there's more talk about the financing of thing different things than there has been in the past um, maybe that's you know um, I think because of all these alliances that have come into play since the last COP um, there is quite a bit of focus on climate tech, which is kind of gratifying for, for me and this techie. So I've, I have been people asking about different technologies and what works and what's available. Um, I was mentioning to you um, as we were prepping for this that I, one of my um, most meaningful encounters this week was with 
three indigenous community leaders who are here in New York talking to the various stakeholders, the other stakeholders, about how the indigenous voice, how the indigenous viewpoint, how the indigenous solutions of all different countries, of course, um, and on nations should be included in these dialogues. And that, for me, was just really eye-opening. I had a chance to just ask, what should I be focusing on? And um, so I feel, I felt gratified that, number one, I had that opportunity. And number two, that there seems to be more attention and more, more, more ears open to that. So what, what was the answer to your question about what reporters like you and me should be doing? So one of the things that um, I thought was really, you know, quite eye-opening was that, you know, when you cover a climate disaster, look at who the community is at that point, you know, point and talk to them about what the solutions are. So we tend to always think about the solutions as outside of those communities, the solutions coming to those communities. But really, what are those communities saying about how to, to handle things? Um, I had a chance to ask about adaptation, um, but also about, you know, okay, do you want money? If you get money, what do you want that money for? Do you, you know, there's often, often strings attached. Should there be strings attached? You know, so, you know, obviously a lot of skepticism about different corporations in different, depending on where you are, right? So there was a really good example of um, one of the leaders talking about this very deep partnership in a mining community in northern Canada. Um, and I'm, I'm doing a disservice by not remembering the name of that community in this moment. It's not in front of me. But there was a very, there's a very rich um, acknowledgement of the company there, that, of the guardianship that the community brings and how they should be consulted and the solutions they bring and the viewpoints they bring to these, these different challenges you have. You know, for example, you know, when you have to bring a, a cargo ship in to pick up the ore, how do you handle the damage to the sea ice, and what happens, and how do you work with the community on that? So, and then, but then there was the other extreme of the, of a place, for example, in Suriname, where um, you know there's still really no rights um, of of the, the community there. They, they're being you know talked to as opposed to consulted. So, I don't know. I, I'm kind of, I'm getting off off on a tangent right now, but I just for me it was a very meaningful conversation because yeah. 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 No, it's a good tangent because I asked you about it. But but one one more question before we we move we move on. Um, what's the attitude towards com corporates uh, towards companies? I mean, it, you know, Climate Week has become a big uh, corporate party in a certain way. Not party. That's the wrong word. But uh, certainly, you know, hundreds perhaps of companies showing up. Do you have any sense? Is this uh, you know you mentioned uh, greenwash? I think before greenwash certainly is a term that has risen. It's been around for decades, but it's really risen over the past year or two in Europe. It, there's a regulatory uh, meaning to it now. It's not just a epithet that you throw at a company if you don't believe what they're doing. What's any sense of the corporate approach to climate? Is it greenwash or is something really going on here? I, I would have to say there's a lot of skepticism. Um, partly because we aren't getting it done, right? Um, to the point of the theme of this week. And I think that's a, a recognition that on the part of the organizations here that the corporations here that they do need to show meaningful process, progress rather, short term, medium term and long term. And I, but yeah, I think generally like I would say that there is a lot of skepticism, um, not just in the, the community that I was just mentioning, but just overall. Um, I saw you know the usual. You see the usual protests 
in the street. So there, I, you know, walked by one yesterday and, you know, just basically, I think there's just very little tolerance for inaction. Right? Or half measures. Or half measures. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're being called, being called out and um, rightly so. So here I am in New York. You're in Colorado, Joel. You were in Europe last week. I want to hear about your travels. I'm traveling locally, but you are getting a chance to um, engage with lots of different people, like in sure. person. Yeah. Our, our networks. Well, I'll, tell about, I'll tell you about my, first, my, my trip to Europe. Can we bring up the first slide, please? Uh, no, just kidding. I'm not going to show a slideshow on a podcast. Duh. Uh, no, I mean, we, we launched, as I've written about, the uh, the European uh, version of, of GBEN, uh, the Green Biz Executive Network, GBEN, as we call it, um, in Paris. Uh, uh, and it was really, really good. Um, about 18 companies uh, from aerospace and transportation to pers- uh, luxury goods to tech um, and, and uh, logistics, on and on. Um, just a really great conversation. We were kind of wondering, uh, because our experience and a lot of others' experience with European companies is that they're not as, they're a little more reticent to speak out and to speak up and speak out. And so um, this, uh, we weren't sure whether we were going to have the kind of robust conversation that we have in our uh, U.S. G-band meetings, and that's why I'm here in Denver, because we have uh, another one of those, our second in-person uh, event uh, G-band meeting uh, since the pandemic, which is really great to be back together. Um, but they did. The, the European companies were just jumped in, sh- showed up in every sense of the word, and had a great conversation. And there were a bunch of companies who wanted to be there but couldn't, um, and we're going to, I think, uh, we're off and running. So that was really gratifying. Um, as I wrote about, uh, I was in London the week before. Uh, Dylan Siegler, our colleague, uh, vice president of sustainability, was there with me for part of it. We were walking through Liverpool Station when we got uh, our phones lit up about uh, Queen Elizabeth II. That was, as I said, uh, I think at that podcast, uh, the opening of the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, it was a really interesting week there and then the following week in Paris. So, um, yeah, uh, this is all part of our uh, growing global domination strategy. But before we dominate the globe, you know what? Let's go back to the Week in Review. So lots going on this week. And I want to start with uh, something that came from our, our, our friend Michael Holder over at Business Green in the UK. Uh, about how the global chemicals industry can reinvent itself as a climate solution. And, you know, that's one of those wah headlines because, the, uh, first of all, chem- chemical sector is, is one of those what's known in UN speak as hard to abate sectors along with steel and concrete and a bunch of others that are just the real, you can't just flip a switch. You can't just substitute out one fuel or one machine or something. Um, this is a major transformation. And uh, the chemical industry has been pretty uh, much, you know, like the fossil fuel, their cousins, the fossil fuel industry, have been kind of foot draggers on all of this. So, so this story definitely caught my eye. How can chemistry be a planet positive force? 
And um, this came out of a report, the University of Toronto and a systems change consultancy called Systemic, uh, where they uh, uh, looked at a decarbonization pathway and said, basically, you have to invest $100 billion a year between now and 2050. So that's about $3 trillion cumulatively. Big number to be sure, but it's probably a fraction of, of the profits that the, the big chemical companies will make over that period of time to slash emissions from their polluting infrastructure and establish new greener forms of chemical production. So, you know, I, I, I'm interested to hear your take on this, Heather. Uh, my quick take is that I have I am 100% certain that the chemical industry is committed to doing this. Whether they'll actually do it, I think is a big open question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I when I think about things, you know, announcements of this sort or just proclamations of this sort, you, number one, you, you, you do realize that they have to do something. I mean, this is just an industry that employ 11 million people globally. So like the opportunity to take this mode of production and to become part of the solution to change what the composition of fertilizer to change the composition of packaging and textiles and like the, all the things that this this industry touches I mean you see the opportunity I, and that's the way I kind of think about it um, you uh, you know a great example um, I, I just wrote about a couple weeks ago is um, a com company called evolved by nature which is a climate tech firm that's completely built on the idea of replacing certain petrochemicals in everyday products. And they're doing it using uh, uh, substances inspired by silkworms, right? So it's like a silk protein derivative. And it's just, to me, it's just fascinating, the innovation. I mean, it's gr it, it, to me, that's just a cool innovation. And, it, and it's also PS yeah. good for the planet. So it's, I love, I just love the idea of opportunity. And you know, you, you know, I tend to be more optimistic and, and um, like Pollyannish about certain things. Like, but well. I just, it, to me, it just makes sense, you know, to have um, a sector like this trying to look at the opportunity to become more sustainable. I mean, because especially if, if um, you think about the people that are buying these, these chemicals, like if they have to um, decarbonize, then the people they're that are supplying them have to do it too. And I know yeah. companies like Unilever, you know, have certain requirements as to how they're, they're changing the composition of their products. So, you know, it, it, it will take the, the buying demands as well as, uh, as, as this intention. Well, that's part of it. But I think you brought up an interesting point with the innovation is that uh, it's one thing to get the chemical industry, the incumbents to transform their production processes and their fuel inputs and, and all that. But, you know, there will be some upstarts or startups, some some interlopers, some disruptors. I mean, who is going to be the Tesla of chemistry? Uh, you think about, you know, Tesla, Tesla they had the, you had the big three or the big six or eight or 10 uh, legacy automakers, and they were chugging along on electric vehicles, not very quickly. Uh, Elon and Tesla come along and, and all of a sudden open everybody's eyes and create this amazing technology. And all of a sudden, all those legacy companies are playing catch up. And and I wonder, you know, you mentioned one, I, I've been working with a company called Gino, uh, Genomatica, they go by Gino, and they're, they're making a bio nylon from, from uh, basically plant sugars that they're selling to Lululemon to make uh, clothing. And they're developing, I think, this really disruptive uh, uh, palm kernel oil substitute, chemically identical 
to the stuff that that the deforesting forests around, uh, and they're working with Unilever on that. So there will be these companies, and, and there's there's tons of others that are going to co- come along and and really, uh, you know, stir the pot. Um, but let's let's switch to a different pot stirring company, um, Salesforce, uh, our neighbor across the bridge in San Francisco. At least mine, not yours, uh, Heather. But um, is launched uh, something uh, this week at Climate Week, a new platform that will uh, de- they say democratize the process of buying carbon credits. Uh, this is one of two stories of, that I want to talk about that that. Senior editor Jesse Klein wrote about, but uh, this is really interesting. Were you part of that announcement? Were you there? And what do you think of this, Heather? So I think for me, this is one of those. I do think the democratization is a good word because if you want to try to buy high quality, and I'll make the distinction: if you want to buy high quality carbon credits, it's super hard to do. And Salesforce obviously has experience doing this, and these other tech firms that have very deep pockets and um, very supportive CEOs or C-suites that are helping um, pioneer many of these these areas. Like, let, let's just set aside the whole carbon credit thing for a moment, like the practice of buying carbon credits as a, as a, as a practice for decarbonizing. You know, we can get into that in a moment. But the fact is, Salesforce does have experience buying them. So what they're trying to do is help others. So especially smaller companies, you know, that don't have the the resources to do the investigation, to do the um, verification, to do the vetting that that you might need to do. And so their idea is to have a platform of, uh, it's going to initially rep- represent 90 projects. And actually, the official launch was announced, soft launched here at Climate Week, but the official launch is at our Verge 22. Um, it should be live by that point. Um, but uh, that we Next, still, in, in October. Yep, exactly. But they also, so I think one for me, one of the most important things about this was that they have two of the um, third-party ratings companies, uh, Calix or Calix. I don't know how that's pronounced. Calix Global and Silvera, that are um, basically talking about, you know, going in and, and verifying that this is this is additional. This is here's the permanence um, aspect of it, and so forth. So I think. It's exciting for maybe mid-sized companies that are starting on their journey and that need to that need to engage at this time in buying credits, um, but that might not have the the bandwidth, if you will, to do that. Yeah, yeah. but 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 I want to come back to something you touched on, Heather, which is that that you know the controversy around credits and are they being used as a substitute for action? We don't need to decarbonize; we just offset it with you know buy. We write a check, uh, and and maybe they're higher quality offsets than we might have bought you know a year ago or, or whatever. But that's you know that's the big question here: Are we making something? Are we democratizing something that isn't necessarily the right thing to do? Or are we somehow moving companies along the, the right path? So if that's a question for me, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a rhetorical question. I'm just uh, we don't I don't think anybody knows the answer, including Salesforce. Uh, but but that that is a question. And speaking of sort of controversial uh, uh, technologies, uh, Jesse Klein wrote another piece about three big direct carbon capture deals we need to know about, and uh, the. the over the past few months, there's seen a flurry of deals 
between these uh, direct air capture startups and or, or ventures and, and some big corporate sponsors. Of course, this is the uh, technology that, for lack of a better term, just sucks the carbon out of the sky and captures it and sequesters it somehow. Uh, that somehow is, is, is always uh, an interesting question. Um, so she covers three of these, uh, and, and we don't have to get into the specific deals, although some of them are interesting. The one that uh, uh, Microsoft had been invested in something, another a customer of, of a platform called Heirloom, um, and, and another one in, in Europe. But I, I do think that this is one of those, another one of those questions about is this, you know, direct air capture is probably even more controversial than carbon credits these days in terms of, uh, you know, there, uh, whether this is something we really should be investing in or whether this is just a way to throw some money at some companies that's not really going to solve the problem. Um, but, you know, you got to love the progress they're making and uh, still not ready for a prime time. But we're moving things along. What, what was your takeaway from this? So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the Microsoft changing from an investor to a customer. And that's actually pretty common um, with, with the companies right now in the space of Stripe. Shopify, they've all done the same thing. It's, and so if you think about it, they'll benefit from it. Just like a Salesforce is going to benefit from the zero, the zero market, you know, the zero, then it's zero marketplace. Um, so I think I just want to make that observation is that these, you know, the tech industry stands to make money on managing sustainability. I mean, let's be clear. Um, sure. So um, that, that to me is just really interesting. I particularly appreciated the deal that was out of Europe, you just referenced, uh, Yara Schluschkiel, uh, an ammonia and fertilizer plant in the Netherlands. Um, so, because this is very focused on industrial. This is actually, you know, hard emissions, if you will. They're, they're coming from a plant and how they're collecting them and liquefying them and moving them over this, um, this pipeline, the Northern Lights pipeline uh, to, I think that's the proper word for it, a pipeline it is transporting these things. Um, but, you know, and then sequestering it, storing it. Um, so it's just, a, it, to me, it's, it's always fascinating to see the actual in practice industrial decarbonization happening. And so I, I particularly yeah. appreciate that deal. Well, here's another technology that I think is pretty interesting. Well, it's the last story we're going to talk about that from senior editor Elsa Wenzel, a, a robot or drone uh, practice of cleaning up plastics in and around the Great Lakes in the United States. Uh, and she, she talks about uh, an effort by, uh, backed by a million dollars from uh, Meyer Supermarkets uh, and, and shows a cute little video of this little baby tractor. Think of it as a Roomba for the beach uh, that's going along the beach and, and, and pulling up uh, plastics and then, uh, I guess, taking them for responsible recycling or otherwise just uh, disposition. Uh, and then another version that goes in the water to clean up water. I, I, this is another one. Maybe I'm just being a little too skeptical right now. But, I mean, it's great. Great technology doing uh, something that's really important to do, cleaning up plastics from the beaches and oceans. What I wonder about, Heather, is is whether this is one of those things saying, ah, it's okay, we can litter because the robot's going to come in tonight and just clean it up. So are we pushing off the responsibility from humans to machines and therefore absolving ourselves of, of not having this plastic waste in the first place, not just not littering, but not even having a lot of this plastic packaging produced that does end up on the beach that these robots have to clean up. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just grumpy today, but that's my that's that's my 
climate week take on on this particular story what's yours i'm a little grumpy about this one too i'm grumpy aren't you proud of me joel <laughs> um wait you were pollyannish a second i ago. know and now i'm grumpy what this, happened this okay one, go ahead. you know this one so here i here here i will say the thing that i do like about it number one is i love hearing about just creative approaches right so this is a creative approach these things um uh, the waste shark, actually, I wrote about, I forget when, but, you know, it, to the extent that you can automate some of these processes and clean up water and filter small, small bodies of you know, small ponds and lakes. And I mean, Great Lakes is, is pretty, pretty uh, formidable task. And there, this, the very, it's very clear, and Elsa's very clear in the story that this is kind of a public relations thing, right? They want to show that they're doing this stuff. And, but in reality, like, it, 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 it fills up, it's like 25 gallons of debris, it has to be manually emptied. It's, you know, this, this stuff is not gonna, it's not gonna clean up a lot, right? And, and there's someone makes up, one of the people that she quotes makes the point that like a small team of humans could pick up more <laughs> in the same amount of time. So um, I think the thing I do like about it is just like I said, it's, it's a very innovative, um, what, what if kind of approach. Yeah. And yeah, it, and and yes, and, and to be the grumpy part of me will say yes, it detracts from the fact that people you know, organizations like Meyer should be just doing much much more to get their their suppliers to be changing their packaging, right? So the what they put on their shelves in the supermarkets should be different. Should should the packaging should be different. So they you know, I I would hope that this complements all, you know, efforts on their part to get their suppliers to really clean up their act on packaging. I mean, that's the main thing. Obviously, other things as well, but but that would be the the place to start. So yeah, and, and I think the thing with this story and the direct carbon capture story uh, is sort of similar in a way. They're cleaning up the messes we've humans created. Is that uh, you know great that they're doing that? But these are end of pipe solutions, as they say in the engineering, environmental engineering world. This is in other words, we're dealing with the problem after we've created it. And I think I'd just love to see more effort put into stopping the problems in the first place, using less plastic, uh, not creating as many carbon, as much carbon emissions. Uh, that's where we need to be going, and that would be. Uh, as the chemical industry called it uh, at the beginning here, a planet-positive force. Is there any corporate sustainability professional out there who doesn't feel a sense of urgency, the need to act more quickly? A focus on getting things done was the theme for Climate Week NYC this year, and practical advice on how to break down the organizational barriers that can slow things down was the focus of research co-published this month by the Climate Group and strategy firm Oliver Wyman. Joining me to chat about the findings and recommendations is Helen Clarkson, Chief Executive of the Climate Group. Hello, Helen. Hi, nice to see you again. It is excellent to see you. I love having these encounters, although it feels like it shouldn't be just once a year, or maybe it'll be more in the future. Um, but let's start with some context, right? So what was behind this report and who was surveyed or consulted for its creation? Great. So behind this report is actually the theme, you mentioned the theme of Climate Week this year, which is getting it done. And we're really at the moment focused on how we move from commitments into action. And at Climate Group, you know, we've seen a real improvement 
in the amount and the, you know, the, the commitment that companies are making and others. Um, but what we're also seeing is the need to, to really create that shift. And we worked with Oliver Wyman last year and produced a report called Getting Real, which was sort of a blueprint for um, what smart climate transition looks for for corporates. And what they said was great. You know, people really loved it. But then they came out and said, OK, but how, how do we do that? And so the follow-up report this year, Getting Going, is really about how you break down those barriers within companies um, to action. And so um, the research w involved both surveys and then some in-depth interviews with around um, 29 different companies um, and looking at, you know, what were the barriers? What did people say enabled them or, or, or hampered them in sort of making that shift into action? So what do these practitioners say are the barriers? Like, talk, talk to me about some of the top ones that popped out. Yeah, the biggest thing that they're, they're saying, they're not, the problem isn't that the companies don't want to do things, right? So that commit, the commitments that have been made are followed up by willingness. But it's really sort of understanding things like how do you measure um, scope three emissions? How do you look up and down your supply chain? Um, how do you create that business case? There's often a lot of upfront cost. And so you might have that internal theoretical buy-in. But when they see the numbers on the page, it's like, oh, you know, how's that going to work? You need to think a bit differently. And, you know, how do you make it a business priority? So it's often, um, you know, unless peers are seeing it as a priority, maybe it doesn't shift leadership. So, you know, there's more than just kind of paying lip service to the commitment, but there's a kind of some, some internal barriers you have to leap over. And so this has become quite a kind of diagnostic toolkit that companies can use to, to get into that and understand what they need to do. So we obviously have people that are breaking through these barriers. So we do have leaders. So what is what are the formulas or the best practices yeah. they're using to do there? You know, I think you had a, a kind of categories in, in some different areas. So yeah. So one one sort of really big theme was that companies need to lead with strategy, not measurement. You know, there's been a lot of focus on reporting. We've had sessions here at Climate Week on accountability, and a lot of that is understanding that yeah, the numbers are one thing, but then how do you go beyond that? And actually, you need to start with the strategy and then um, figure out the numbers and metrics that, that check how you're doing on that. So that was one key thing. And then in the report, we have these, you know, four enablers um, that show how strategy matters. So we talk about attention. Um, and so really sort of framing the case across uh, across the business um, and aligning incentives, having a vision um, that sets out the goals and priority, uh, priorities um, and understand when you want to innovate and be a pioneer, when you're going to learn from others. Um, operation, so really embedding that vision then into the operations and creating a glide path that takes that vision into manageable chunks and then coming back to this idea of accountability. So, you know, aligning people's accountability, not just those climate people, but actually sort of getting in there and supporting and incentivizing um, people to take action. One of the, the things that we see a lot is that many people in the workforce are trying to reskill themselves to understand what sustainability is, even if they're not in sustainability mm. roles. We've, we've sent, uh, Salesforce had some research out this week on how um, people within their organization wanted to just learn more. So I'm curious about how important employee education is and, and how does this um, translate like can you can you give an example of how that's changed the narrative yeah so nova nordisk you know they've always been a very leading company and they uh, set up a, an education for employees called circular for zero um, and then it has different levels within that so basic proficient master and strategic planner and the idea is to create this kind of tailored learning path that employees can go along um, and get them to different where they need to be, but also kind of leaning into that interest that they have and, and, and understanding they come from different parts of the organization. So, so that goes um, across the organization and employees can go on that. And I think it's a really good example um, of how companies are putting that into practice. 
Yeah, I'd love to see more companies put this as part of their onboarding, right? You hire new employees, you have them understand what the climate plan is for the company, the sustainability goals and so forth. I think that would be just such a powerful powerful Agreed. tool. Agreed. And I think, but I think that, you know, we're seeing companies start to build it into incentivization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you know that you're going to be incentivized on this, you're probably going to go and learn what the it is, you know. <laughs> so I think there's that kind of two-way street there as well as, as it gets into kind of more compensation packages. How important is it for um, companies to engage their customers when developing their climate action plans? Like, and, and, What's the best way to influence that dialogue? Yeah, I think sometimes that can be a bit um, overlooked. Um, and we've seen in the report, it goes into some sort of examples and, and thinking about, you know, how companies can start to see that, you know, they might be seeing it as a cost rather than seeing it as an opportunity for investment. You know, we've had a conversation this morning about different stakeholder groups and thinking about customers. And those can be, you know, sometimes I think when we, as soon as we say customers, you think of those individuals. But obviously, if you're Siemens who were on a panel this morning, you've got these big corporate customers and how are you then going to help them hit their climate goals? That's another really important part of it is building those um, collaborations. And we had a big, yeah, a big conversation that just come out of, so it's very fresh around when do you collaborate and when do you lead and go it alone? And I think that's a really important thing to think about. I want to go to collaboration in a moment, but I, I want to stick with this that example you just gave because that would imply that that company's salespeople would be completely bought into the climate strategy, that they would understand the questions to ask. Like, how does, is that part of the yeah, equation? I think that's really interesting. So um, AstraZeneca just can't, um, had a conference um, with its suppliers that were look, setting out its scope three targets and the collaborative approach intends to use with its suppliers to help them. Now, I don't know if those are salespeople or kind of customer engagement. I mean, the answer really is we need everyone in the company to understand the climate plan. I think that salespeople are often kind of quite far down that path. But as you said, if we could get it into onboarding or get it into... Um, particularly if you get it into their sales targets, then you're going to find that they want to know what it is because that's going to literally incentivize them. So, so is that very holistic approach we need across the company? So I want to talk about collaboration because that is one of the things that came up as a, a theme in, in the opening ceremony. Like industries need to move. Industries need to get together. Industry, we've talked in the past about pre-competitive mm. and so forth. So how, um, you know, how might companies work together to break down some of the barriers that were described in this report? Yeah, so, uh, we, you know, on this panel that I've just been talking about, we, we were talking about when do you collaborate? You know, we, so I came back to this kind of cliche you hear, like, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go further, go together. And everyone sort of hears that as a kind of, you must always go together. But actually, I think there are different strategies for different moments. And it was really interesting hearing Google talk because they were talking about, you know, when things that they're collaborating on with others in the tech sector. And, it, and actually, the one of the other panelists went, well, you would never talk to Microsoft. And they're going, yeah, of course we do. You know, and, and there's these things where they're not competing. And what she made very clear that um, Kate Brown from Google was saying, we know where... We're a com we know where we have a competitive advantage, right? We know what Google is good and wants to compete on. And on those issues, we're going to go on our own because we know what Google alone is good at. But then there's these other things like, you know, where we work with them together is on things around, say, renewable energy policy in South Korea or in, you know, other parts of Japan, other parts of Asia. That's not a bit where they compete. They need to collaborate because actually the way that some markets are structured makes it hard to buy renewable energy. And if you, if you collaborate there together and engage with policymakers, there's a real opportunity there. Another example is in the UK, we run something called the UK Electric Fleets Coalition. Um, we have Sky and BT in there. Now, hugely competitive companies, but they don't compete on electric vans. They compete on, you know, who's providing us with the internet or who's providing us with our TV services over there. 
they're telecoms companies. But in fact, on electric vans, they can totally collaborate because it's not, it's not that area of competition. So it's getting very clear about not saying to companies you have to give up your competitive advantage, but there are spheres of action here where collaborating with your competitors might make a lot of sense. And I think one question I sort of asked, and got a bit of an answer too, but it was like, you know, that can be very countercultural for a company, I think. And I was saying, well, you know, internally, how does that go down? You're like, oh, we're going to work with our um, biggest competitor. That can feel quite difficult, I think. But again, if people start to understand the, the, the frame we're operating in, it can help unlock that. So we've been very focused on this report, but yeah. is there anything else that's jumped out at you as a theme here at Climate Week, um, NYC, of course? Uh, things that maybe surprised you or that, I don't know, validated is the right word, but, you know, that you thought, yes, yes, we need to do more of this. Yeah, so, you know, the overall theme for the week is getting it done. And then within that, we're sort of curating all the conversations as climate groups. We host the week and we're talking particularly about accountability, justice and urgency. And actually all those themes have had a really good response, which is great because at least, you're, you know, you're, you're, it's resonating with people. And um, I spoke quite a lot at the opening ceremony about equity and, you know, just trying to think about the current crisis that we're in and how that's reopening this conversation around fossil fuels and it's allowing, you know, some bad faith actors to, to use it as an excuse to reopen a debate that they've lost. And actually, if we come to that, I think they can start to then pose it as an equity thing. You know, there's obviously a... Um, an energy accessibility point, which we really need to think hard about. But in our view, um, equity is, is not sort of saying, right, let's just reopen that debate. It's saying, look, the global north has been promising the global south with amounts of money for decades now. You know, it's kind of coming up to that amount of time. Where is that coming from? You know, and specifically in the last five, six years under Paris, there's this commitment, keep talking about, about this amount of money, and it's not flowing. Um, and it's about getting that money flowing. That's what we need to do. Um, and, and, and stop pretending to be surprised when we see the pictures from Pakistan. I, I said in the opening ceremony yesterday, we can be shocked, but we can't pretend to be surprised that we're seeing that when we're not doing the things that we have promised. And, I, and actually, what was great was that a lot of people came up to us, came up to me afterwards, and like that really resonated. And I think that equity conversation is really opening up in a way that I'm really pleased about. It really resonated with me, I know that. And I, one other thing that resonated was the comments that were made about how we can't put conditions on that money, mm. right? The communities that are, have been affected, they need to make the decisions about how to adapt, how to change. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think one of the things that stopped money flowing, this is quite an amateur standpoint, I haven't got into this in a lot of detail, but through conversations that I have, it's that we need new models around risk. We need new money models around how we deploy finance. And I think sort of trying to tackle a new problem with old ways of thinking, you know, it's that kind of thing that people talk about, the Einstein quote or whatever. You, you just, we need new ways of thinking and we need those really urgently because we've just got to unlock these flows. Okay, one last question, which is just like the calls to action, right? We're, we're heading into the COP season <laughs> um, and, you know, out of this, this week, um, what for the corporates that are listening, what, where do they need to go? They need to put in place action plans. You know, we're really pleased with the commitments we're seeing, but, you know, 2030 isn't that far away. 2050 isn't that far away and you're not going to just get there by hoping. So what we really want to see is very kind of... Uh, targeted action plans that say, how, what are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing next week? How are you getting there? And then they can use Climate Week, NYC, and other things like this to learn from one another and get there more quickly. Thank you, Helen. Thank you so much. You just heard from Helen Clarkson, CEO of The Climate Group. 
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned this week. While you're over there, I always encourage you to check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them every week and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We love your comments, questions, and tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Agendi. Reach your climate goals with Agendi. From sustainability assessments, implementing sustainability strategies, to bespoke reporting, we provide you a personalized experience tailored to your needs and expectations. Visit us to learn more at agendi.co. That's A-G-E-N-D-I dot C-O. We'll lead the way.